Carpenter. I'm just looking for an announcement from um, Joe Carpenter. You know Joe and Scott Carpenter? She had her little baby. It's a girl. That's their third little kiss from heaven, as Warren would say. Annalise. Annalise Victoria. It's a pretty name, isn't it? She looks just like her sisters. She was born 5.32 yesterday afternoon, <coughs> last evening. She weighed 7 pounds 2 ounces and she's 50 centimetres long. Anna, Lou, Annalise. Anna. <coughs> yeah, I should say it. Uh, she's one ounce lighter than Violet and two centimetres shorter, so we win. <laughs> 1 Samuel chapter 1 we're starting a series on the book of Samuel we're going to do the first 7 chapters over the next 7 or 8 weeks and there is a life group connect group material, bible study material that Pastor David and others have prepared which is available for you and you can collect that and I commend that to you likewise I encourage you like uh, like David does, to join a connect group, <clears throat> to join a, a life group, to find yourself in a small group with other believers who can help you study the Bible and hold you accountable and assist you in following the Lord Jesus. Tonight we begin a series on the book of Hebrews. David's going to kick that off, so I encourage you and commend that to you as well if you'd like to come along and learn more about the book of Hebrews. Peter and Hazel no, Peter and Lynn Bishop, some of you all know Peter and Lynn, both mums. Peter's mum, Hazel, is in hospital. She had difficulty breathing yesterday, so she's been taken to PA hospital. And Lynn's mum, I think her name is Barbara, Barbara Lewis, is at the Wesley Hospital. And I think uh, she may have cancer, I'm not sure of the details, but they're expecting both their mums to have a short, limited time frame remaining months. So please remember Peter and Lynn and their mums in prayer. There is a members meeting on the 26th of February and commend that to you. If you're a member, if you're an associate member, if this is your church where you belong, that's a place for you to be. A Sunday afternoon, 1.30, up in the auditorium where we'll talk about some important issues and decisions for us as a church to align ourselves, share together, learn together what God's will is. And next Saturday, the 11th, is a leaders' gathering, a leaders' get-together. If you're a ministry leader, then that's the opportunity for you to come together, to support each other as well as be encouraged as leaders. Let's pray together. <clears throat> uh, Father, we are going to be reminded this morning that you are the Sovereign Lord, the Lord of life and death, the God who's, in whose hands our life is held. We pray for Peter's mum and for Lynn's mum and we thank you for their faith in you and we commit them to you. If it's your will, Lord, then we pray that you might bring, raise them up, that you would give them strength for the journey that lies before them and in your time you'll take them home to be with yourself. We ask for your grace, your peace and a sense of trust that you would impart that to Peter and Lynn cast their cares upon you. We thank you for the birth of little Annalise and pray for her and her sisters as well as for Scott and for Joe. We thank you for the blessing that children are to us 
and ask that she might grow to be strong and healthy and come to know the Lord Jesus personally. Guide us, Lord, in all of the meetings that we have before us as a church as well. And we do ask that you'll speak to us now through this part of your word, that you'll shape our thinking, mould our lives, and fill us with your spirit to be effective servants of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The book of Samuel begins or overlaps with the end of the period of Judges. It's the last judge, Samuel. And it probably he coexists at about the same time as Samson. So if you can sort of imagine them coexisting in different parts of the country. The Philistines are on the rise and we will learn more about them in the chapters as we work our way through the book of Samuel. And there is a leadership crisis going on in the country. The country is reasonably divided between the tribes and most of the tribes are not closely aligned with God's purposes. There's a lot of rebellion and covenant disobedience happening. But in the midst of that, there are certain individuals, and this chapter focuses upon one such family, who do seek to honour and follow God in the midst of a world which is out of step with God. That's a relevant word for us. So this book, if we focus in chapter 1, we're going to try and get through to chapter 2, verse 10 this morning, uh, which is a long journey to take. So I encourage you to listen carefully, take notes, nudge each other if someone nods off. It begins, verses 1 and 2, by talking about this particular family we're going to focus upon. There are four characters in chapter 1. Three of them are out of the family. Elkanah is the husband. Verse 1 tells us that he came from Remethaim Zophim. Came from Ramah, which is not a famous city or town just yet, but it will become famous because it's the hometown of Samuel and he will make it famous. Remethaim Zophim means that there are like twin peaks in this particular city, twin heights from the hill country of Ephraim, which is about the centre of the land of Israel. It's about five miles north of Jerusalem, approximately, where this place is. The list then goes on to say that he was the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, from the tribe of Ephraim. Father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all these people. And most commentators make the comment that therefore he was a man who was famous, renowned, because he can trace his ancestry. One commentator that I found differs from that, that's John Woodhouse, who was, I'm not sure where he is now, but he was at Moore College in Sydney. And he makes, I think, a very perceptive comment that no, just because we have a list of his uh, ancestors, if you look carefully at the names, they're all unknown to us. That's the point, John Woodhouse says, that he comes from a line of people who are obscure, a group of people whom we don't know. Who are these people? We don't know them. And that's the point, that God is about to do something in the midst of somebody who is just very ordinary, very unknown, uh, but God will use them to achieve and to advance his purposes. His unimportance, if you like, is what's important. It's what we should not. God is going to act in the midst of, he's going to do something out of nothing, which is typical of him. Well, this man's home life, we're told in verse 2, that he has two wives. It's polygamy. This is not a New Testament command. It's not, a New Te- it's not an Old Testament command. It's not an instruction of the Bible. It is permitted. It is allowed. But it is always presented in the scriptures like it is here, with the disadvantages, with the tension, with the rivalry which is there. 
God's perfect will and intention for us as one man, one wife for life. Amen? Like I said in the 8.30 service, who could cope with two wives, really? No, just being honest with you, it's one is really hard enough. That's You know that I'm only joking, don't you? Wives are a blessing. They are companions, support. And I wouldn't be the person I am without her assistance in cooking and cleaning and other things that she does. I nearly got out of the hole that I dug, but not quite. Well, here we have an example where the Old Testament, the Bible teaching when you have two wives, you know, it's God created... Eve for Adam, one wife. It's Jesus saying from the beginning God made the male and female. It's one. That's God's perfect standard. Certainly when you come to the New Testament, the qualifications for pastors for elders is a one woman man. That's the idea. But in circumstances and societies throughout history, this sort of situation has emerged. And it does here for Elkanah where his first wife, Hannah, the one that he appears to really love quite deeply and sincerely, is unable to produce children. And because of his societal or you know, inheritance needs or whatever, he takes a second wife and she is very fertile. She has uh, many children. In verse 4, she has sons, plural, and daughters, plural. Well, into this family, which we are now focusing upon in this chapter, two wives. First one's Hannah. Second wife is Peninnah. And as I said, Peninnah has children. Hannah has none. Well, year by year, this particular family that God's going to do something significant through, year by year, this family would take an annual trip. They would go from their town of Ramah and go to the sanctuary, the tabernacle of God, which is in Shiloh, which is 15 miles north of them, a journey which would have taken, I guess, a full day, and took the whole family. And he went there to perform some religious worship, to sacrifice and to worship God. We are not told that this is one of the three feasts that God required the men of Israel to make to the tabernacle on an annual basis. It may very well be in line, like it is in Judges 19, I think, of this annual feast of the Lord. You can go back and read Judges, how that was an occasion where there was dancing and the tribes of Benjamin was nearly wiped out. and It was at such one of these annual feasts that people would come and kidnap some of the women for their own wives. Well, this may very well be just a personal family pilgrimage. text is not that clear for us. But it does indicate a heart for God and an obedience to what they perceive to be his will. In verse 21, it's because of Elkanah's vow that he is fulfilling, that he does this every year. So year after year, this man would go from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. It's the first use of that phrase, the Lord of hosts. Your Bible might say, translated as the Lord Almighty. Come back to it in a moment because Hannah uses that very phrase when she prays. So they go to worship, to sacrifice. We're told as a side note that there were two sons of Eli. He's the fourth character mentioned in this chapter. Hophni and Phinehas are the two sons, Egyptian names, and they're serving the Lord as priests. We'll discover more about them in chapters to come, the next chapter and chapter after that. Uh, that they're not very godly that they are quite abusive and they are the ones who are mainly in charge. Verse 4, 
Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would do so like a peace offering. It wasn't a whole burnt offering that, you know, he offers up the whole animals, but in this, or at least part of it is, in this offering that he gave, the priest gave him back part of the cooked animal. And he would cut that meat portions of the animal up and he would distribute it to his family members. In verse 4, Peninnah got her portion and so did all of her kids, all of her sons and all of her daughters. So a sizable part of the beast was given to Peninnah's and her children. Verse 5, and he would give a portion to Hannah. I think it should be translated as he gave a portion, one portion to Hannah. Why one portion? Because she didn't have any children. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. He loved her, he cared for her, and he treated her perhaps specially. That's why in some Bible versions, and yours might be one, it in fact translates it as, but he would give a double portion to him. A double portion. I think that's unlikely. Um, but if it did, you could certainly understand Peninnah being a little bit jealous of that outward display of affection. Um, it says that he particularly loved her and that uh, he treated her tenderly and kindly. Before I go any further, let me remind you of this. That it's an unusual situation and it's a bit subtle, but if you've been reading through your Old Testament several times and you might be aware of it, or you could cheat like me and read some commentaries. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there is this promise of God Listen carefully, Deuteronomy 7, verses 12 to 15. It's God speaking through Moses. If you obey these ordinances, these commands, um, and are careful to do them, then the Lord your God will faithfully keep covenant with you, as he promised your ancestors. He will love you and bless you. He'll make you numerous. He'll bless you with many children, produce of the land and grain and wine and so on. Verse 14 you will be blessed beyond all peoples. There will be no barrenness among you. There will be no barrenness among you or your livestock. The Lord will protect you from all sickness and so on. Well, that was the promise of God, his covenant with his people of Israel before they went into the promised land. If you obey me and keep my covenant, when you get into the land, you'll have a land of plenty, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where there will be no barrenness, no infertility. Well, how come we read here that Hannah is infertile, that she can't have children? God had closed her womb. Well, because Israel was not keeping the covenant. Something is wrong, and that indicates it for us. Why does God sometimes allow these difficulties to occur, like infertility for Hannah? Well, sometimes it's because of sin, perhaps like it is here in the nation. Sometimes God allows difficulties into our lives to humble us, not necessarily because we have sinned, but simply to humble us and to cast our, draw us back to him and to cast our cares upon him. Or sometimes, as I think this chapter is going to remind us and illustrate for us, God allows difficulties in our life, like here for him, because he is like a master chess player who is moving various pieces around and he's using these particular issues in our life to achieve his purposes. For instance, sometimes a crisis can happen in your life and God will use that, God will allow that in order for other people, other unbelievers to be watching you to see how you respond, how you react and for God to use your reaction to the crisis to convict them or to draw them into a relationship with him. 
God is a God who works. It's comforting and for me I believe this, that our God is a sovereign God and everything that comes into my life comes via his throne. Either he sends it directly, he's involved in it, it's his specific will for me, or it comes via his throne with his permission. He may not send it, but he allows it. Either way, he does it or he allows it, he's in control. Nothing is going to happen in my life that he is unaware of. God does not say, oops, he has full control of what's going on and he does in your life. Does that mean that things will always be good? No, they weren't here. But he's still in control and he's working his purposes out. So year by year, Hannah would go with Elkanah and Peninnah, go up to Shiloh where they would worship. And Elkanah, a man who took God seriously, treated his wife, both of his wives, tenderly, carefully, appropriately, um, believed, understood that God had closed her womb. He doesn't blame her, he's not resentful. We're not told that he's angry at God or anything like that. He simply appears to accept that this is God's will and he moves on. We need to do something similar. Not all people respond to life's tragedies like that. Peninnah takes the opportunity for the grief in Hannah as an opportunity for her to be a bit nasty. She has a sinful response to somebody else's dilemma. Um, Verse 6. Hannah's rival wife, her rival wife, interesting words, phraseology, used to upset her and make her worry because the Lord had not enabled her to have children. Peninnah would behave this way year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the Lord's house, Peninnah would upset her so that she would weep and refuse to weep. She stuck the knife in and didn't just stick it in, she twisted it. Peninnah was second wife and she knew it. She was jealous. That's what happens in polygamous relationships. That's not untypical of the record all through scripture. But Peninnah's response is inappropriate and it's nasty. You can imagine her saying and asking things like, Hannah, does God care for you? Then why doesn't he give you the one thing you want? Why do you continue to trust him in the midst of this obvious judgment on your life? Dale Ralph Davis, commentator, very good commentator, preacher on the Old Testament. He places a scenario where he can imagine the kids and Peninnah having a bit of a conversation in Hannah's presence, but without Elkanah being there, in which, you know, Peninnah is giving out the meal and she says, now, do all of my children, all of my children have some food? And here's Hannah sitting there and she gets just one portion. Dale Ralph Davis asked the question, can imagine the kids sort of asking questions. Mummy, Miss Hannah doesn't have children. What was that? What did you say? Gets her to repeat it. Why doesn't Miss Hannah have children? Well, I don't know. Doesn't God love her? Doesn't God want her to have children? No. God doesn't want her to have children. Does God not like her? I don't know, Hannah. Does God like you? You can imagine a conversation like that, can't you? And there's something like that which is just nasty. And I think that's the point that we're supposed to get. And this went on year after year. There was no relief from it. Here is a godly lady, Hannah, with a difficulty and a pressure. 
that God is allowing. He doesn't lift it, doesn't change it, and he doesn't prevent Peninnah from continuing to do it. God might be doing that in your life. But he's got a plan and a will and he's going to work it out. And it may not be the way that we want, but it is the way that he wants. Well, verse 7 goes on to say that Henna, her response to that was to weep. It hurt. And she lost her appetite. She wouldn't eat. Not even the one portion that her husband was giving her. This would not have been a favourite time of the year for her. Every year this happened. You can imagine her dreading it. Every year. Here we go again. Here is this reminder. Verse 8 then tells us, having focused on this family, now we're going to focus on one particular day in the life of this family from verse 8 all the way down to verse 20. It's the day before the family is about to return home. And on that night, or on that day, uh, this sort of conversation had gone on again. Verse 8, you have good old Elkanah, a caring, tender husband, but who is powerless to change things, says to his beloved wife, Hannah, why do you weep? He hadn't got a clue. He didn't know. Why don't you eat? So he's either not present for the conversation or he's just oblivious to it, whatever. Why are you sad? Aren't I more important to you? You know, aren't I more significant to you than ten sons? Typical bloke. On this one particular occasion, she does respond to him and she does begin to eat something. After they finished eating and drinking in verse 9, Hannah did something. She stood up from the table and she headed for the temple, the place where they had been previously to offer a sacrifice. When she got there, sidelight, Eli, the fourth character in this chapter, is sitting on a chair in the doorpost of the temple. He's a priest, he's the chief priest and he's on duty if you like, sitting there watching over the temple. She enters whether she sees him or not and she goes into a part of the temple, the tabernacle, where she prays. Probably like the, pre, uh, the Pharisee in Luke 18, she raised her hands towards heaven, her eyes to heaven, and she prayed to the Lord of hosts. Her prayer is in verse 11. Eli doesn't get to hear it, but we do. God has conveyed this somehow through his spirit to the author of Samuel. She prays, O Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, if you will look with compassion on the suffering of your female servant, remember me, not forgetting your servant, and give me a male child, then I will dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life, and I will never cut his hair. She's distressed, she's distraught, she's hurting, she's gone to the temple, she's crying, weeping. She stands there praying, but the passage says that she's also weeping, almost uncontrollably. Um, and Eli, sitting there, is watching her, and he can't hear anything. Later chapters will tell us that his eyesight has diminished a little bit, so it maybe is a bit blurry. He can't hear her, and all he can see is her staggering around, sobbing and doing things. And he thinks, incorrectly, that she is drunk, like on perhaps previous occasions, like in Israel, to indicate their disobedience. Other people had come to this very same temple and had mockingly gone through the process of worshipping God. And he, correctly, bravely, rebukes her, goes to her and says, um, put away your drink. Her response is simply to say, I haven't been pouring out any drink, I have been pouring out my heart to God. Here is Hannah in the temple, 
going before the God whom she acknowledges as the Lord of hosts. He is the sovereign one who alone can change these things. She believed God did this to her. It's interesting. She believes God is responsible for this. She's not resentful. She's not rejecting God. She rather goes before God and prays and petitions him to, can we change the plan, please? You're the sovereign God. You're the Lord of hosts. You're a good God. That's what you're like and that's what you can do. You can do the impossible. And Lord, I'm asking you, change my circumstances. When she calls God the Lord of hosts, the first reference, as I said, in this chapter in the Bible, what does she mean? It's a rich phrase where it talks about, imagine hosts like um, in the physical world, it's the host of heaven, the created heavens. It's the, the planets and the stars and the meteors and the comets. You are the creator of the hosts of the heavens. You created all of this. You're powerful. Well, the hosts of heaven could also be, the Lord of hosts could be referring to the angels, heaven's hosts. Is the Lord of the angel armies, as the Met Bible translates it. Or hosts could refer to the tribes of Israel. Well, you put all of those together. You're the Lord of hosts. You're the creator of the vast universe. You're the ruler of the angels in heaven, and you're the ruler over the tribes of Israel. You called us together. You're the God who is sovereign, and you can change things. And she pours out her heart to God. And in the process of it, if you jump down to verse 18... She is changed. She went her way and she got something to, her, to eat. Her face was no longer looking sad. Her prayer life, in this instance, helped her and changed her. Evelyn Christensen wrote a book called What Happens When God, When Women Pray. And one of the points that Evelyn Christensen makes is that when we pray, things change. Evelyn Christensen's point is most often than not, we change. God changes us, changes our attitude to a circumstance or our acceptance of a circumstance, we change. God is capable also, like he is here, of changing circumstances. Prayer helps. That's why the New Testament invites us always. God is sovereign. He is doing things in the world. But ours is not an acceptance or a fatal acceptance, a passive fatalism, if you like, where we, oh, well, God wants that, so I won't do anything. No, no, no. We participate with him. He is the sovereign God who is working his purposes out. We're commanded to pray and he uses prayer to achieve his purposes. He listens and responds. Cast all your cares upon him, Peter says, because he cares for you. God will lift you up at a certain time, Peter goes on to say, if you humble yourself under his mighty hand. Well, that's what Hannah did. And the sovereign God heard her. She does make a vow which can sound like a bit like a bribe, which is not bribing God, but it can sound like it. A Lord of hosts, if you look compassion on me, your servant, and if you give me a child, then I'll dedicate him back to you. If you do this for me, this is what I'll do for you. And she's not praying now, because it's the Lord of hosts, sovereign one. You're not able to be manipulated, and I am your servant, humbling myself before you. My petition, she is sincere, she is specific, She's submissive. Lord, if you choose to change the plan, if you choose to change my life circumstance and give me a son, then you know I'll train him, but then I'm going to give him back to you. 
not just like a Nazarite vow, which was temporary, but all the days of his life. Total consecration, a living sacrifice. So that's what she prays, and it's a remarkable prayer. And as I said, Eli misunderstood her and rebukes her, and she corrects him, and she finds the prayer process transforming her. And she heads back to the tent where she eats something. The next morning, verse 19, the family get up, and the family heads for home. Before they do so, they worship. They take the 15-mile trip south back to Ramah. And then remarkably, in the next few weeks, maybe the next couple of months, Elkanah had uh, marital relations with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Not that God forgot her, but the phrase means, and God started to orchestrate the circumstances of her life to achieve his purposes. Just like God remembered his people in Egypt and raised up Moses, God remembering is God choosing to act in conformity with his purposes. That's what it means. And after some time, Hannah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son, Samuel. And she says, because I asked the Lord for him. Just to continue the story quickly and then to make an application of it to us. Um, Verse 21 goes on to tell us that that 12-month time of the year came around again. And so Hannah has become pregnant and has uh, given birth in that 12-month period before this return to Shiloh. And Elkanah is going up again because of his own personal vow. But Hannah does not go. And the passage points out for us that she says, uh, once the boy is weaned, I'll bring him to appear before the Lord. Weaning back in those days could be anything from two years three years and even sometimes up to four years. She would have breastfed him for that long. It's a different world, isn't it? But she did. And in the process of doing that, she would have not only fed him, but she would have clothed him, she would have bathed him, she would have taught him, she would have prayed for him. She would have had a godly influence in his uh, upbringing. And then she's going to do a remarkable thing. She's going to hand him over to somebody else, trusting in God to keep him. So she does exactly that. And then true to her word, when that period of time is completed, verse 24, when the child is weaned, when he's able to eat solids and stand on his own two feet, then she takes him along with three bulls, an ephah, a flower and a container of wine, very generous offering. She brings it all and they sacrifice and then they bring the boy to Eli, the chief priest. She reminds him of who she is. And then verse 28, I now dedicate him to the Lord. From this time on, he is consecrated to the Lord and they worship the Lord together. What do we learn from all of this? Well, you can look at chapter 1 and you can look at Elkanah and it certainly is worth reflecting on him as a follower of God, a godly man who his responses and his statements and the implications of it, that's worth reflecting on. That's not what the chapter's about. You could do the same thing with Hannah. She's certainly worthy of reflection, of meditation, what does she do with her distress? She brings it to God. You can study her prayer and you'll learn from it. But that's not the main point either. It's a strong lesson from the chapter, but it's not the main point. Hannah prayed and she was heard not because she was sincere, though we need to be sincere when we pray. She prayed and she was heard not because she was desperate. She prayed and she was heard not because she made a vow. Well, why did God hear her prayer? 
because it was his will. It was his sovereign purpose to use a nobody, Hannah, from the, tri- from the family line of Elkanah, this unknown man with his family heritage filled with obscure unknown people from Ephraim, to take that family and to use them to bring a blessing into her life but to achieve his purposes for Israel. That God was going to use this unknown woman to bring a man into the world who would both direct his people and uh, deliver his people, bring correction and direction to their life. God works through the ordinary, including us. works through nobodies. God is pleased to work with those who have flaws in their life. He likes to take us and clean us up and then use us. So what did God answer her prayer? Because it was his will. Because he had a purpose to achieve. When we pray and God says no, it's still for the same reason. He says no because it's not his will. It's not in line with the purposes that he's wanting to achieve. And we need to align ourselves with whatever he determines is right. That's what Hannah does. She goes, she pours out her heart to God and she's changed. Her circumstances are not changed. She's still not pregnant, but she is the burdens lifted. She finds herself submissive to God. That's where we need to find ourselves. And so quickly, she goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. There's a record of her amazing prayer and it reveals her heart attitude to God and it reveals something for us about God. That her story is like Israel's story. That as she was oppressed, so Israel was. As she was mocked, so they were. She didn't have a son, Israel didn't have a king. God looked on her affliction and God delivered her. God would look on Israel and God would deliver them. He's done the same thing for us. He's looked on us in our affliction and he has sent a man, a king, to redeem us and to deliver us, Jesus. She says, verse 1, My heart now rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted high. I loudly denounce my enemies. I am happy that you have delivered me. Not sad anymore, but rejoicing in God, focusing on him. Verse 2, no one is holy like the Lord. He is unique. There is no other one like him. There is no rock like our God. One version says that uh, there is no, uh, what is it? There is no more, you're safer in God than you are on the tallest mountain. That's the picture. That God is more secure than anything else that can be provided. Therefore, verse 3, she prays that this God, because he is a God who is at work in the world, We therefore need to stop speaking arrogantly. We need to put aside proud talk and acknowledge that God is sovereign because our arrogance, our pride, which permeates us as sinful people, is nothing more than a pretense. We are pretending to be better than we are. We are pretending, deceiving ourselves, that we can look after ourselves, deliver ourselves, when the reality is we can't. We need God. That's the point of this prayer and certainly of this story. You see, that's one of the issues. We say we believe in God and we say we trust God, but how much do we? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Because at the end of the day, I have money saved in the bank account. I have my own car. I have um, you know, a lot of things that will provide and sustain me. And when all of that is gone, I still have Centrelink. 
And then I belong to a very generous church that will support me. You see? I have all of these things in place. So it can lead me to being not reliant upon God, but reliant on me or my own savings and things. And this passage is calling us, God is the God who is in control. He's the sovereign God. And he is the God who gives us all of these things, but not for us to dismiss our relationship and reliance on him, but for us to be responsible stewards of them. And he is the great reverser. He can change things. He changed things in Hannah's life and he can change things in our life. She goes on to illustrate that. Verse 3 she says, The Lord knows and he evaluates everything. He knows how you're responding to all of these things. And then there is a long list from verse 4 all the way down to verse 8 of bows are broken, the warriors' bows are broken. Those who stumble now find their strength reinforced. Those who are weak are made strong. Those who are rich are now made poor. Those who are poor are now made rich. Those who are weak are now made strong. God can reverse things. The barren woman is now a mother. Or even the mother of plenty is now languishing, withering. Those who are alive, God can bring down to Sheol. Remarkably, those in Sheol, in the grave, God can bring up. He is the great reverser of life circumstances. And he can reverse your life circumstances. We ought to pause and think and reflect carefully on what is our attitude to God in the midst of my life circumstances. What is my attitude to human power? Do I need it? No, I don't. What I need is to trust God. Julia Gillard's not in control of Australia. She's charged with responsibility and she will be held accountable accordingly. There is a God on the throne who will achieve his purposes. We look to him. What's my attitude to wealth? Do I need to hoard it? No, God gave it to me. He can take it away. He will hold me accountable. God holds me in the palm of his hands. My life is in his hands and he will determine what happens. That's true. Think about that in your own life. I don't know if you had a good week or a bad week. I don't know if things are going well for you at the moment. Life is a struggle. I'd be surprised if we didn't have both sorts amongst us. But God's in control. He is sovereign. He's achieving his purposes. He cares. So we need to align ourselves with what he cares about. As I said to the 830 congregation, you may be a person who finds yourself in a very comfortable situation in life circumstances, that God has blessed you, has provided for you abundantly. He knows and he will weigh your responses and your reactions and how you use that. God can take it away from you just as much as he gave it to you. Why would God do that? Well, he could do that, as I said before, because there could be sin in your life and he's trying to discipline you, get your attention back. He could do it because he wants to humble you. Or he could do it because he has another agenda altogether. He wants to achieve his purpose in your life and in the lives of those around you. How do you react when a crisis hits? Do you point to God, continue to trust him like Elkanah, like Hannah does? Or do you take the opportunity, like many unbelievers do, to reject that, make fun of him? God can bring you to the edge of a cliff. That's what I said in the earlier service. And I had somebody come to me after a following 
God can lead us in our life towards the edge of a cliff. When you get to the edge of the cliff, what does God do then? Well, sometimes on the edge of the cliff, he'll wrap his arms around you and he'll hold you there in that tense, scary situation. He'll hold you. He doesn't move you. You're still on the edge of the cliff. That circumstance in life is still there. It's still happening. But you'll have a sense of his peace and control. Sometimes when you get to the edge of the cliff, he pushes. And you find yourself tumbling. Whenever he pushes, it's always because he wants to grab you. He wants to hold you. He wants you to be fully reliant on him. One person came to me after the service and they related very well to that with what's going on in their week and they said, and sometimes when God pushes you, he lets you bounce before he catches you again. God is a sovereign God and he's a good God and he is a God who will work his purposes out and our purposes align with him. It's not about us, it's about him. Verse 8 of this chapter, chapter 2 says, that he is the creator, uh, that he made it all and sustains it all. Verse 9, there are two groups of people in this world who respond to this unique sovereign creator. There are those who are faithful to him, like Hannah and Elkanah. And there are those who reject him, in verse 9, called the wicked. And verse 10 says that God is a God who created, who governs, and who in the end will judge. He will call to account. Listen carefully. It's not the strong. It's not the powerful. It's not the wealthy. It's not the famous. It's not the successful. It's not the one with the most toys who wins. The ones who win in the end are those who say God is their God, who align themselves with this sovereign Lord, with his good creator. And what he is going to do, Hannah prophetically, surprisingly, looks ahead She has amazing perspective, given to her, I guess, by God, no one else. The Lord executes judgment to the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king. There is a king coming and exalt the power of his Messiah, of his anointed one. This God, Hannah's God, the God of Samuel, is the creator of all things, who knows all things, who weighs all deeds, who will certainly judge the world. He worked through a woman to bring a deliverer into the world and he will do it again through Mary in the person of Jesus. He is at work at world and at work in the world in our life circumstances. He's directing history. He's directing your life. He certainly uses prayer and responds to it. But because he is the sovereign God and because he is God, because that's what he's doing, bringing his king to right the world, We are to align ourselves with his purposes and he is worthy of praise and he is to be thanked when he chooses to act in these ways. He invites us to submit to him and I'm going to lead you in a prayer to that end now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the God on the throne. Everything comes into this world, into our life, into our circumstances that surround us comes from you or via you. You're not caught by surprise and you are continuing to work your purposes out. Thank you, Lord, that you have worked in our lives 
Thank you that we can align ourselves submissively with your will. Give us faith and courage like Hannah to bring our requests, our perspectives, submissively to you. But Lord, like her, may we likewise be transformed simply by trusting you. Lord, achieve your purposes. Bring your King, the Lord Jesus, to rule in us and to rule in this world. Right that which is wrong. Reverse our circumstances. Help us to be a witness for you until he comes. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.